Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. The boundary between real-life crimes and fictional ones has been blurry for a long time. Writers have been using elements of actual murders in their plots as long as crime fiction has existed. I've explored some of the most famous instances from history, such as the case of The Brides in the Bath and The Roadhill House Murder on past episodes of this podcast. There are also plenty of instances where real-life murderers have been inspired, in the grimmest possible meaning of that word, by elements that they've read about in books or seen in films. Perhaps the most relevant example to what this show covers were the events in the village of Bovingdon, Hertfordshire, in 1971, when a real-life killer followed the fictional pattern set by Agatha Christie in her novel The Pale Horse. The interchange between crimes in fact and in fiction is made all the more complicated by true crime, a genre unto itself that involves the telling of real-life stories about crimes, often murders, as a form of entertainment. As a listener to podcasts, you're probably already aware that true crime podcasts in particular have experienced a boom in popularity over the last few years. Where once you might have needed to buy books or magazines to get your true crime fix, there are now thousands of hours of these ripped from real-life tales waiting to be whispered into your ear at the touch of a button. But is it a good idea for us to spend so much time immersed in the actions of people who harm others? What are we doing when we consume stories of real murders with real victims for fun? Given that I have devoted parts of my own podcast to doing just this, these are questions I'm always interested in considering, and I hope you'll join me as we dive into them in more detail today. My guest for this examination of the dark side of true crime is Emma Burkist a writer from Texas who's published both fiction with a crime element and non-fiction essays and articles about the ethics of true crime. In 2021, she wrote a piece for Gorka titled True Crime is Rutting Our Brains that addressed what happens to our mindset and ideas as we consume these stories. And she's also written in the past about how being the victim of a violent crime herself affected her views on all of this. We're not going to go into any details of that attack or her injuries in this episode, by the way, but there'll be a link to Emma's account of it in the description if you'd like to read it. Emma, welcome to the show. So if you were to describe your relationship with true crime now, what would it be? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm still a fan. I think, I think it's hard sometimes for people to hear criticisms of it, and I and I get it, but I think we should interrogate the things that we like. I think it's smart to do that and healthy to do that. And I mean, I would still say that I'm a fan of true crime. I mean, I just finished watching the Gacy tapes on Netflix. You know, I'm I'm still always going to have a relationship with it because it's something that I'm interested in. I'm curious about crime. I'm curious about murder and killings and, and sort of the darker side of human nature. But I also think that some of the ways that we go about it and the sort of proliferation of it isn't always a positive thing. So I'd say it's something that's like, I treat it like a guilty pleasure the way that you would watch like reality TV or something. Like, I know this probably isn't good for me, but I still enjoy it. So I'm going to do it. And has that changed at all over time? Did you used to be a less critical consumer of it? 
I, I think so. I think I bought into the like, no, this is, you know, I'm staying informed. This is maybe not like helpful in terms of like giving you tips, but I didn't necessarily think that there was a downside to it until I sort of started realizing that I was thinking about things too much. And especially after my own attack, I started seeing a lot of sort of my PTSD symptoms being repeated in people who were sort of avid true crime consumer. And it made me start to think a little bit more critically about especially sort of the amount and the type of true crime that we're consuming. You mentioned your attack there, and this is something you've written about a few times. Would you say that was a bit of a turning point in your attitude to the genre, becoming a victim of a crime like that yourself? I think it wasn't it wasn't the actual attack. I think it was the sort of recovery years down the road. So, I mean, the actual attack, getting over it, it's mostly just sort of like a physical process of getting over it and healing. And then it's just that the the mental toll it takes on you can, you know, last for a very long time. And so I don't think it was necessarily the attack itself, but it was recognizing these sort of lingering symptoms and then seeing them in other people who hadn't been attacked and wondering, well, why are other people being hypervigilant the way that I am when they don't necessarily have cause to be? Because it's not, hypervigilance is not like a positive thing. It's not something you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to always be looking behind you to keep yourself safe. Like it is a symptom of PTSD. It's a trauma response because your brain is like, you know, wired differently now because you're constant because you know it expects danger and so it's not something that you want to live with it's not something that is a a normal way to interact with the world Mm. so i mean true crime partly in podcast form but also in tv and books seems more popular than ever yet real crime in lots of the places where this stuff gets consumed is historically lower than it's ever been yeah. And I mean, we've seen a little bit of a rise in the past couple of years, but that's mostly due to COVID and just, you know, economic stressors. But yeah, it, things are a lot safer now than they were, you know, like in the 80s, 90s. And, and you know, we it, it's strange because like you, you wouldn't know that from the amount of true crime and the amount of, you know, news coverage of these crimes. Like it certainly is creating this sort of atmosphere of heightened awareness of like there's crime everywhere and you know we read these articles and you know you see like oh we're going to recall politicians because they're being soft on crime it's like well but there really isn't a lot of crime it's like it's a perception it's it's we are being told that there is crime we believe it because it's reinforced by the stories that we listen to and sort of feeding into that i often see true crime podcasts especially the more salacious or speculative ones referred to as a guilty pleasure um, I've got a friend who calls them her silly murder shows. Right. <laughs> Do you think listening or consuming true crime is something that we should feel guilty about? I mean, I I don't love the phrase guilty pleasure because I I mean I use it, but I don't I don't think we should. I don't think we need to feel guilt about it because I don't really think that helps anything. I would I would put it more. I feel like there's a comfort in it, the same way that you would watch like a procedural show where you know like there's a bad guy and a good guy. And in the end, everything's going to wrap up. So it's it's more like a, a comfort thing for a lot of people. I think instead of feeling guilt, we should just sort of be more aware of the response that it's having on our brain, you know, like check in on yourself. Like, am I starting to get paranoid about the neighbor being, you know, a serial killer? Am I starting to think that I can't trust people? Am I starting to think that crime rates are, you know, at an all time high? 
that's the kind of thing that you're starting to suspect and feel like then you need to sort of take a step away and say like, okay, let's come back to reality. But I don't, I don't think guilt is necessarily the right word for it because I think that just makes you just feel bad for no reason. You know, it's like, you don't have to really feel guilty. I mean, it's being produced. Like we're, people are going to watch it whether or not you feel guilty or not. So I think just sort of maintain a level of awareness as you're watching it and just know that it's not good for you. Like everything in moderation, potato chips, like, you know, they're not good for you. You don't have to feel guilty eating them. Just don't do it all day, every day. Yes. As part of a balanced media diet, perhaps. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe watch some like, you know, climbing documentaries. I don't know. Just space it out. (laughs) And now this is where I'm going to be a bit anecdotal for which I apologize because I just couldn't find reliable data on this. But based on what I see online and how these shows seem to be made, I feel fairly confident in saying that a large proportion of the audience for true crime podcasts at least is made up of women. And very often the stories that they tell are about horrific things being done to women as victims of crime. How do you think gender plays into this cycle of production and consumption? Yeah, I think when people imagine a victim they think of a woman. I, I just think because we are, you know, seen as more vulnerable when people think of like the perfect victim, that's what they think of. Even though men are murdered at a higher rate than women, I still think that we sort of are the image of like, you know, the helpless. It's it's the damsel in distress, sort of classic trope. And so I think those are the kind of stories that have always been sort of the most sensational. So people tend to gravitate towards those stories, you know, like young, beautiful, innocent girl, big bad guy, you know, and, and that sort of dichotomy is just sort of a very classic story. And I don't know if the, it, it's like a chicken and egg thing. Like, I don't know if true crime focuses on women because women are the primary consumers or that because women are the primary consumers, they think it's smart to focus on women. But either way, like, here we are. It's just always, even from, you know, starting with like Jack the Ripper, like that is sort of our classic beginnings of like true crime tabloid journalism and you have yes a bad guy with a knife and you know female victims Mm. and it is interesting isn't it the way in which you can get that frisson from consuming things that are essentially aimed at making you feel unsafe yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's a cycle you know it's you you think you're getting, it's like, oh yeah, this will give me tips to stay alive. When in fact, you're just sort of getting yourself into the mindset of like, I need to be afraid all the time. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, 
and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. And in the article that you referred to, True Crime is Rotting Our Brains, which is a great headline and a great piece. I was, you know, trying to, trying to get some eyes on it. <laughs> you wrote in there a quote that I found really intriguing. You said, crime stories are a fundamentally conservative way of looking at the world. I wonder if you could unpack that a bit for us. Well, when we tell crime stories, when we, like, what is the purpose of these stories? And it's it's usually followed by a response or a call to fund the police, to, you know, protect yourself more, to increase surveillance, um, all of these things that are reactionary. And, you know, whether or not that has basis in reality, that, that is just the sort of end result of telling crime stories is that there's going to be responses that are reactionary and conservative in nature. You know, the reason that we have, you know, stations that, that like Fox News that like play a lot of these sort of, it, it plays on that heightened fear and that heightened sort of emotion and an emotional response, you know, like the, there's always something wrong with the world. There's always something wrong with the country. Like we need to be doing this and this and this and those things are usually reactionary responses because it's it's that sort of it's a primal instinct when you hear about someone getting hurt you want to punish them you want to save them like those like no one wants to hear like oh well this is a societal issue or we should be you know like more lenient on criminal. like that's just people it's very it's not a nuanced conversation usually when we're talking about crime it's a very visceral response yes no one ever tells a story about a horrific crime and goes you know what we should have more of this yeah, yes, we should. Yes, exactly. It's like, oh, we need to, you know, rethink, you know, long sentences or the three strike law. Like these are just crime stories are ways to sort of they're just often used as propaganda, you know, for for the things that are already in place. But, want you know, we want to continue them. It's like, a, you know, we already put a lot of people in prison. That's obviously not the solution. We would have absolutely no crime if putting people in prison solved all crime because we incarcerate well, America incarcerates, like, you know, more than any other country. So that's clearly not the solution, but that is what crime stories tell us. Like the bad guy goes to prison, belongs in prison and stays in prison. End of story. I used to cover the podcast industry for an industry newsletter and some story that I did once, which still haunts me, speaking to what you say about propaganda, was there was a police department that started making their own true crime style podcast as a I think probably from good motives, it was like a missing persons appeal, essentially. But just the way that they'd very deliberately formatted it, really, I found that odd. Yeah, there's definitely some ethical issues with something like that. Yeah, you know, I, and here's the thing, though, it's it's 
their motives are probably crystal clear. We don't really know a lot of the motives of other people who are, you know, telling these true crime stories. And the thing is, like, you know, you can say, like, oh, I'm just reporting the facts. But you are always putting a narrative spin on something because when you're when you're reporting something, the way that you choose to report it matters. Whether you're fo- focusing on, you know, like on the victim, whether you're focusing on the perpetrator, like all of these things are choices that, you know, the reporter or podcast host is making. They are shaping the narrative and they are shaping it in a way that they want to. They're in control of it. How do you think true crime affects or interacts with our understanding of narrative? Does it always push us towards expecting a neat ending to a crime story? I think for the most part, because it it is, again, sort of like a procedural kind of thing, especially when you're doing like a, a podcast or a series, you know, on television where you have a case, you know, per episode, you're expecting a conclusion. And unless it's something like unsolved, you know, mysteries, people expect for there to be some sort of closure. And I think that is somewhat of a of a strange way to look at it because like we think of the closure as being like, okay, you know, they catch the bad guy, bad guy goes to prison or bad guy gets killed. But there's a lot that happens after that. You know, like we are ending it at a point where, where the case ends, but not necessarily where these, you know, these people's lives ends. Like there, there are a lot of things that happen, you know, years down the road. And we're constantly learning new information about forensics and, and <laughs> how a lot of this is subjective and like, you know, so some of the podcasts I like are the ones that look at sort of cases where, you know, someone has been wrongfully convicted and, and you know, re-looking at the evidence, things like that, just sort of exposing some of the problems in, in the criminal justice system and, and looking at how a lot of this is really subjective, Think, like things that I didn't know about in, until recently, you know, things like bite prints, footprints, a lot of these things are, are there's no sort of... <laughs> person in charge of this there's no like database system that does it it's it's just somebody kind of looking at two samples in a lab and being like yeah these look the same to me you know so we're sending people to prison or you know convicting people based on what could be very subjective and we've seen a lot of mistakes being made and you know other than dna there's really not a ton of hard evidence that you can use and you know i so i'm I'm always curious about like you know when does a case end when like are we assured of this person's guilt? What happens to the victim after, you know, their attacker goes away? They still have to deal with the fallout of that. And I think that trying to tell, you know, a, a story that's very tidy isn't really possible when you're dealing with someone's real life. You know, this isn't scripted. Mm. Yeah, I think anyone who's ever been involved in a, a, a real case or sort of even been adjacent to it knows that it doesn't feel linear while you're in it yeah not at all it's yeah it just kind of it just comes in waves it's like there's different phases of it but there's it's really hard to pick a point where it ends but that's what you know the producer or director is doing they're they are creating the story they are creating the arc they are you know building up the dynamics they choose what the climax is and they choose what the ending is so we're getting a story that's really just that it's a story it's it's not necessarily just the facts because just the facts would be boring that would just be someone reading a bullet list of like and then this happened and then this happened you know people want a narrative but a narrative is always you know subjective it's produced by someone and I suppose that comes back to your earlier point about being critical and keeping your eyes open that 
as long as you are thinking about, well, who's telling this story and why are they making these decisions, then you are, I guess we could call it, you're an ethical consumer of true crime. <laughs> or at least a more aware consumer. <laughs> and you're a writer of fiction that has a crime or mystery element to it. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of your book, Missing Presumed Dead, which I really enjoyed. Oh, thank you. In case listeners haven't read it yet, it features a woman with a kind of second sight who teams up with the ghost of a murdered woman to hunt down her killer. Do your interactions with true crime inform your writing about fictional ones, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When you're trying to you know, think of crimes, when you're trying to think of bad things that you can do to people, it does help to sort of have an awareness of some of the cases that have gone on. And particularly when you are setting a book in a certain location, you want to sort of be aware of like the local myths and legends. And a lot of that is based on, you know, local crime. So, you know, when I, I, you know, recently set a book in Austin and there was, you know, a, a serial killer, like way, way back in the 1800s called like the Serpent Girl Annihilator, which we don't really talk about much. It was like, that's one of America's first serial killers. I think mean, either a contemporary or might even predate Jack the Ripper. But, you know, there are these things that sort of just add local color to a story or to a book, things that make it feel more authentic. And sometimes that is, you know, learning about some of the crimes in the area. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you see it as well with, I think, the way, like you were saying about hypervigilance, people react to the things that they remember. So, you know, it might be that stranger danger was a big thing when you were a child or, you know, not going out after dark or whatever the particular thing you were told will be an interaction with true crime in some way. Yeah. I watched like a special on baby Jessica, which was this case in Texas. I was too young when it happened, but I, I saw like a 10 year retrospective or something. And it was about this little girl who she was, I think like one and a half and she fell into a well and they couldn't get her out. And it was this like this huge media spectacle to try. They spent like two days trying to get her out of the well and it gave me nightmares and it gave me like an extreme sort of phobia of falling into the earth for like a very long time. And it's because my mom watched this stupid special on TV and I happened to be watching with her. And it's like those things sort of shape you and they, they shape your fears too. Something that comes up a lot in the crime fiction in the period that I cover on the podcast is this idea of taking a real life crime story or the paranoia that results from it and sort of putting it immediately in fiction. So there are examples from the 20s. You know, There was a famous case, for instance, of this woman called Edith Thompson, who was hanged for the murder of her husband by her lover. And within a couple of years, there was a popular novel out about this. And I obviously looking back at it for, with the vantage point of 100 years, you can be like, oh, well, this is an interesting novel, etc. But I like to imagine how did it feel at the time for, say, her family or to be like, wow, OK, now people are just consuming this for fun. Yeah. And I mean, we're seeing that now, like, you know, this Gabby Petito case and now there's already a documentary. I don't know if it's, you know, like all fiction or if there's some sort of I'm assuming at some point they're going to make a Lifetime movie or something about it. And it's like these these are real people you know, and they have family that is still, you know, very much alive and watching this. And I, yeah, I think about how it must affect them. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, once a story is out there, it's out there though. You can't sort of retract it. And it's, I mean, that's where a lot of people get inspiration from is, is looking at these cases and it's, you know, writing is how I work through a lot of things and work through fears and, you know, who's, who's to say that that's, you know, the wrong way to sort of process that. But it's also, you are also 
selling something. Like writing is a business. So you are making money off of it. And that strikes me as a little unethical to be profiting off of something like that. I used to have this very clear cut line in my mind where I thought, as long as everyone involved is gone. So if it's long enough ago. Yeah, it's certainly easier when you're not affecting people who are out there living it. But even then, I sort of had my mind a little bit changed or became a little bit less certain about that when a few years ago, there was a a case, I think it was in the 50s in Britain, one of the last people to be hanged for murder. There's always been this big uh, guy called James Hanratty. There's always been this big question over whether he actually did the murder at all or whether it was just a case of a mistaken identification and it was actually someone totally else. And there was a campaign to, because apparently there is still DNA evidence held that could be examined. And there was a campaign to get this done. And I heard a, a radio interview, I think with his great nephew, talking about why they were pushing for this to happen and maybe he could be posthumously pardoned, etc. And I thought, wow, so this guy wasn't even born when this happened. He wasn't there for any of it, but he's clearly very emotionally invested in this. It's like lived in his family for all these decades. So like you were saying, like, where does it end? I don't think I could comfortably say that that story, everyone involved is gone because they're not. Yeah, no. And when it becomes sort of part of your family legacy, I think there's there's going to be a lot of emotions still, you know, mixed up in that. It's like, you know, I, if you had someone in your family who's like a famous criminal, that's, and you, you know, that's part of growing up with that last name, with that sort of burden, with that information. That's, I mean, that's going to be difficult for, you know, a family. Yeah, there's, there was a case in Australia about the, I think one, I think one of the one was, was British, about the two girls who murdered one of the girl's mothers because they were going to be sent to, to different schools. They were concerned about how, how close the girls were. And they made it into a movie, the Peter Jackson movie, Heavenly Creatures. So it was sort of a very famous case in, oh, I think it happened in New Zealand. Sorry, that's, that's why I know it. I lived there for a while. It was a very, you know, famous case. And, you know, the girls both went to prison and then when they got out, they were not allowed to have contact with one another. And one of them changed her name and moved to England and actually became a fairly successful crime writer. And I always thought that was kind of weird. It's like you kind of are making money off of like something that you, you did. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, obviously she should be able to work and do that, but it, it always struck me as kind of odd that she had been involved with, you know, a murder and then sort of turn that into a career of writing about murder. Yeah, it is. It's difficult, isn't it? And it's a bit uncomfortable because, and I think what I've I've ended up with a lot of this is that you can try and make rules for yourself about how you consume it and then you just end up breaking them. And every time there's always an instance like that where you might feel confident in saying that, you know, she absolutely should not be allowed to do that. She should not be allowed to sort of profit from her crime in that dramatic sense. But then also, you know, maybe she hasn't got anything else. Yeah, yeah, like I mean, yeah, she served her time. Like, why shouldn't she get to do what she wants to do? But it's also just kind of like, I don't know, it's just wild to me. I would, I would not want to think about murder at all if I had murdered someone. Yeah, I suppose that that's the part that's hard to empathize with, isn't it? It's sort of like willingly walking back into that that world. Yeah, yeah, it's like I mean, she served, she, yeah, she served her time. Like, why shouldn't she get to do what she wants to do? But it's also just kind of like. I don't know, it's just wild to me. I would I would not want to think about murder at all if I had murdered someone. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean again, like maybe that's how she processes it. And that's, you know, maybe maybe that's 
Maybe, I mean, maybe that's true for a lot of true crime. Is that it's that how that's how people make sense of things? And I mean, that's how I got into it was like wanting to understand why people do the things that they do. And I mean, I think part of what started my fascination with it was reading in Cold Blood, which I still think is sort of like the watermark of great true crime books. You know, and Truman Capote, like he wrote that book because he he didn't understand why these men had killed his family. And the truth was like, neither did them. And it's, it's such an interesting and empathetic book, but like, you know, he's telling the side of, you know, Perry, the man who, who, you know, committed the murders and it's very empathetic. And it's, it's, he, he really does identify with him because he's spending all this time with him and talking to him. And I wonder if he had also had the chance to speak with the family, if he would have felt differently, you know, cause like, again, like it was just this one side of it. Like, we don't have the family side because they were gone. But I, I just always think that it's it's easy to empathize with people who have done who have done bad things, and it's easy to empathize with people who have had bad things happen to them. But it's hard to do both at once. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That it's a rare true crime story that manages to hold both perspectives at the same time. Yeah, and so it's like it's usually people usually pick a side, and that again, that's a choice they make the choice like are we going to focus on the victims or are we going to focus on the perpetrator this episode of she done it was written and narrated by me caroline crampton you can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com where there are also transcripts of every episode she Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.